Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben. Today my guest is Alan Marshall. Alan is Emeritus Professor of History at Bath Spa University. And we're talking to Alan about his new book just published by Manchester University Press in their Politics, Culture and Society series. It's a book called Intelligence and Espionage in the English Republic, circa 1600 to 1660. It's a magnificent book. I read it more or less at one sitting, learned a huge amount, uh, and I'm really delighted that Alan's here to speak about it with us today. Delighted to be here, and thank you for asking me. Well, thanks, Alan. Before we start talking about the book, could you tell us something about yourself? But this book reflects a long, distinguished career of writing and teaching about history of intelligence in the 17th century, but also a little bit beyond. Could you tell us how you came to this project? Well, I mean, it, it, be, it began really a, a long time ago with a PhD, which was about intelligence and espionage in the reign of Charles II, and specifically on Sir Joseph Williamson, who not many people knew or had written about. And that developed into a, an earlier book on intelligence and espionage in that reign, um, which was fairly well received as a standard. Um, and from that, really, I've moved into teaching uh, about intelligence and espionage, mostly because students wanted it, uh, rather than the early modern stuff. They wanted the modern stuff because they're, they're fixated on James Bond and Ian Fleming and things like that. Um, so really, I mean, my my special subject became one of the history of the intelligence services from, say, the, the, the 1890s through to the modern period. But I so, so obviously researched into the early modern period, and one of the results of that was to go back into the 1600s and this, through to the 1650s and look at the Cromwellian intelligence system. Um, but also, uh, at the same time, because there's, there's, there's other things to look at as well, to go forward from... Uh, the Charles II reign into the, the into the 1690s and even in the 1700s, when there's a bit of a, ch- a sea change and it, when you get to Walpole, um, the whole thing starts to change somewhat and it becomes far more structured. 
Although one of the arguments, um, which I continually make to students as well, is the discontinuity in this this world, particularly in the world of England and then Britain, the British polity, uh, that large amounts of British history in terms of intelligence and espionage has been based on mythology. And it was quite valuable, particularly in the 19th and early 20th century, um, that foreign powers believed the British Secret Service uh, was the best in the world. When, If you look at it in detail, there isn't a British Secret Service of there is. It doesn't last very long, not until 1909, anyhow, with the establishment of the Secret Service Bureau, which is why that particular course really begins in the 1900s. And it ended in, in, in 2020, as it were. It went right to the modern period. Very good. It, it, it's interesting, Al, isn't it? Because in the book, you you want to, or you tell the reader in the book that you want to take some of these cliches to task, don't you? So you, you mentioned Ian Fleming uh, just in the conversation there, but you mentioned in the book as well, uh, as I suppose contributing to the creation of a stereotype or a set of cliches about what intelligence work looks like, about what a spy, in inverted commas, might look like or do, how they're recruited, trained, employed, their likely fate, and so on. And those those cliches, which you interrogate and critique, set up a number of very interesting research questions for this book as well, don't they? Could you tell us a little bit about what the stereotypes are and then maybe very quickly how the book tries to dismantle them? Well, I think one of the one of the issues is that we we tend, or it, there is a tendency in intelligent history to take a rather whiggish view, to to look backward at where we are now and say, well, they must have been doing exactly the same sort of things. Uh, but uh, it works on two levels really. One is the discontinuity element. There is no real continuity between, say, Walsingham and modern DMI5 or SIS, Secret Intelligence Service, sorry, sometimes known as MI6. Um, But the the books, and particularly historical novels, tend tend to want to see a continuity. Um, So the emphasis there is to say, well, actually, it's rather broken. It was rather broken all the way through. And and, uh, it's all to do with money, really, in in that sense. The second element of this was was language. And I think that that, that's a key element. And it's um, the language being used in the early modern period is not the same as the language being used by us now. Uh, So we are in a sense of what was happening. And one of the arguments really is that we're inflicting our language on the past, as it were. Now, in political theory terms and things like, for instance, the levelers, for instance, was originally in the 60s and seen as proto-socialists. And we now realise that they're not quite like that at all. And they have different ways of expressing themselves. And their language is quite clumsy sometimes. And I think in terms of the intelligence and espionage of the early modern period, that language is clumsy in some senses, but it's more important to understand it's the language they used rather than the language we impose. So we go into uh, or what sometimes happens is or has been happening is they go into the early modern period looking for the use of modern language, things like spy master, uh, malls, etc., etc., which has all been picked up from people like John Le Carre, really, and Ian Fleming, and of course the boundary element is 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 um, quite common amongst everybody. Everybody knows who Bond is. Everybody thinks they know what a spy does, even though, as I explained to my students, Bond isn't really a spy. He doesn't actually do much espionage, um, and they're using the the, the, the language 
of modern day parlance in an early modern context, which doesn't really seem appropriate. So one of the things Booth's trying to do is to say, let's track back and look at the language they use. So instead of using Spymaster, which actually is a very late addition uh, to the language, we used what they used, which was Intelligencer, which has a much more broad appropriation of the idea of intelligence and espionage, but actually fits the period rather better. Yeah. Um, so that ideas of, of language is also important when understanding the, the product of this of, of this these systems, these intelligent systems that they're creating. Because language is the way in which they narrate the intelligence to each other, how they orientate around the social relationships, which were also central to the idea of early modern intelligence, and particularly client-patron relationships. And language is the way in which they communicate. Um, so it was an attempt to go back and say, hold on, they're actually using a different form of expression, really. Um, amidst that, there's also the development idea of uh, if there is discontinuity where where's the development lie well it lies in the state's uh secretary of state's office and the development of that office from the one well, really from the 1590s onwards into the modern era as we get people uh, who i mean aristocrats and others who used to dabble in intelligence then then fall by the wayside and it just becomes a function of the secretary of state's office and that Secretary of State will then, is as a government officer, will then feed in information into policy decision making. Much of it is short term policy yep. decision making, which is quite good for intelligence because it comes in and then you use it and then it's stored away. Yeah, I suppose one of the big themes of the book, Alan, is the gradual professionalization of intelligence networks or intelligence gathering. And uh, one of the things you point out in the book is the way in which high-ranking individuals can sometimes run private intelligence enterprises, which are gradually sort of subsumed uh, as the state and its administration begins to expand. It's interesting you mentioned the levelers there. One of my favourite passages in this book uh, was the descript- your description of the attempt to begin a leveler insurrection in France, which was just extraordinary. Uh, the levelers, yeah, in the, the front uh, during that counter-revolution uh, there. Well, you mentioned Walsingham and the Tudor origins of the surveillance state, or what we what we might come to use uh, that term to describe. Can you tell us a little bit more about Walsingham? Uh, he has this Machiavellian reputation, doesn't he? He's like a spider; his fingers are everywhere. He's got a massive web that people get entangled in. How does how does Walsingham's experience of intelligence gathering? compared to what we find much later on in the middle 17th century? Well, I think it's much more of a what, what I've, I've called a working tradition in Walsingham's case. I mean, there's two Walsinghams. One is the real Walsingham, um, who I'll come back to, and the other one is the mythological Walsingham. And in a sense, I mean, the, the mythological Walsingham is more important than the real one, um, although he did do some sterling work and he broke plots and and, and he was his main interest is in religious uh, Catholicism and, and, and plotting in, in general. Um, and he's, he's skilled in so much as he's greedy for information. So he sets a trend within the secretary, the idea of a secretary of state, what a secretary of state should do in terms of intelligence and espionage in so much as he needs the information. It's almost as though it's a, it's a, he can't help himself. He's also what, what they call a bountiful hand, 
this was the second element. Uh, you don't get anywhere in intelligence, and that is a there is a truism of today, unless you pay, basically. So he spent large amounts of his own money, not just the state's money, because Elizabeth was a bit uh, reluctant to give money in any case, um, on trying to acquire information. Um, and so his reputation is, on in a practical level, is that he is a good intelligencer. It's it's not as extensive as uh, as everybody believes. I don't think. I think it's quite limited because the systems that they're talking about are um, quite rickety. I mean, when when Walsingham dies, I mean everything's sort of closed down, and uh, it, it, it's just uh, it, agents pensioned off, um, staff pensioned off. Um, nobody does anything. There's never enough money in the Elizabethan period, anyhow. But um, but the reputation lives on right the way through into the 1650s um, to be picked up by somebody like John Thurlow. And even beyond that, Robert Harley in the, um, in the 1700s is, is described as a new Walsingham. Um, so I think it, it's a creation of mythology. It's a bit like the creation of mythology about Elizabeth herself. Um, her reputation is more important sometimes than what she actually did. Um, in terms of what he actually did, however, Walsingham, um, and what he's engaged in breaking plots, he's engaged in, in gathering information, but I would argue that Salisbury is probably better at it than Walsingham, whose reputation is less than Walsingham's, I suppose, because Walsingham is this... this he's become a cliché. I mean, even even MI5 and SIS put it on their, their websites, you know, Walsingham is our forebear, etc. And uh, so he's, he, he becomes more important. And particularly in, in, in the 17th century pamphlet literature, when in these sort of areas are mentioned, then Walsingham is, is seen as the sort of the Boer ideal, the idealist, the I, ideal Secretary of State, because he knew all the secrets, he unpicked all, he, he knew what was happening in the Pope's closet, as it were. Um, he didn't, <laughs> nor was because there is a lot of incompetence as well, um, or inadequacies. But the, 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 one of the things about the intelligence and espionage is the mythology as much as anything else. If that mythology exists, then you are seen to be very good at this. And one of the things you point out in the book, Alan, is that that creation of mythology or creation of reputation is often strategic and contemporary, isn't it? It's not always something that accumulates historically over time in some ways one of the things you argue is that the creation of reputation is an aspect of intelligence work yes isn't it? it is i mean the, in, in the, the heroic individual i think is, is how you could describe it um whether that's because there are actually heroic individuals or that's how we see them. And we, I mean, the, one of the issues, I suppose, as it becomes more structured and moves into the secretary's office, then the individual in charge, the individual secretary, does become more prominent. So we, it's a series of jumps, as it were, uh, you know, Scott, Thurlow, Williamson, and later on, Harley. The Johnson brothers of uh, the 1690s uh, were, were two except, uh, exceptional intelligences as well. So this idea of a heroic individual is is something which is embedded in the yeah. intelligence. And then, of course, you move into the modern era. You've got you know, people like Kim Philby, for instance, and, and, uh, and, and of course, you've got the James Bond character, uh, you know, and, and Smiley. 
Um, of course, Bob Bond is always looking to escape the office, isn't he? Uh, he is, he is, he is. And, and yet one of the things the book argues is that intelligence work is often office bound. It's often paperwork, isn't it? And it's about how to handle the huge volume of paper that might be coming into a single central office or some kind of intelligence clearinghouse. Are we are we talking here about a phase in the development of bureaucracy or the administrative state? I think so, yes. I mean, one of the things which is important is to understand is that getting the information is one thing, analysing the information is another thing, and the failures tend to come from the analysis centrally. So the bureaucratic element of intelligence gathering and in the early modern period, this is true as well, is as significant, if not more significant, than how you get the information. Because the information coming in will be, it needs to be filtered, as it were. And that information is coming in on a daily basis, because the other element of this is diplomacy, and diplomacy is using a lot of intelligence work. Um, So we then got, uh, or need, bureaucratic systems particularly in the Secretary of State's office, in order to analyse, in order to respond, in order to act on the information which is coming in. Um, So the key thing for any intelligencer is the ability to analyse, to read between the lines, um, to work in what sometimes, once you read this stuff, the, the, the correspondence which comes in is quite formulaic, very promising, um, most spies, um, agents would promise quite a lot, but would also work in a system whereby I will tell you something, but I could tell you something more if you respond to me. And I can tell you something more if you respond to me, uh, as it were. Um, and so the intelligencer has to work within that system in what is almost becomes a client-patron system or is a client-patron system. Um, and somebody like Thurlow, for instance, it treats his agents contemptuously, deliberately. Uh, there's a, the classic case, which is not in the book, actually, it's in another essay um, of an agent who's kept waiting outside his door for day after day after day to see him. And he keeps coming out and saying, no, I've got time today. And he just keeps him hanging on and hanging on. And he does that in terms of correspondence as well. And at one stage he says, look, this is going to be of no use to me unless you actually produce something and then I'll give you some money or then I'll give you something, as it were. So, again, it's, it's, it, the, the bureaucracy is significant and the development of that bureaucracy begins really in the, in the, in the 16th century um, and and in, it's in, you one could call it an evolution rather than a revolution, but it's particularly significant by the time we reach the 1650s because it's a different style of bureaucracy. One could argue because it comes out of the Parliament's committee systems, so we get the uh, the Committee of Safety, the Council of State, etc., and they're producing information. They're also debating information, and, and this information then has to be stored and then has to be retrieved, and anything goes wrong, etc., etc. So by the time we reach the, the 1690s, we're into an administrative revolution, effectively. Um, and of course, it does the thing that impacts and creates that administrative revolution is war and, and 1688 and the arrival of William III and, and a continual warfare almost right the way through the 18th century. Hmm. So we've so, got a development of bureaucracy. So if we go back to 
if we go back to the middle part of the 17th century, th- th- this growing bureaucracy that, that you describe uh, as being central to the intelligence effort, um, one of the things you show in the book is that there's a very small number of people who are involved in this task centrally uh, in, in London. Um, what, half a dozen, nine, ten people uh, in, in an office, um, a, a changing number of people. The office itself, surprisingly permeable. Uh, for, for all that intelligencers can be kept at the door waiting, there are royalist spies who can walk right up to Thurlow's desk and take a sneak peek at what's on it. How does that work? Um, well, in, I mean, the case of Thurlow, he has, he has an office in, in uh, Whitehall Palace, which has a doorkeeper. Um, which is meant to keep people out, but there's lots of coming and going all the time, and he's got a, a small staff. And the, I mean, this is the days before photocopiers and emails and things like that. So he, the the main business of the clerks is transcription, recording, sending information here and there, Axel. But it's really writing all the time. So. Uh, and. The staff are recruited by the secretary uh, himself, um, and uh, they have allocated functions. But there had been a tradition of, of which stems really from, from the 16th century of Walsingham, where, where you actually allocate functions to particular staff uh, to do with ciphering or keeping records, etc., etc. And it doesn't really become really sophisticated until the until the early 17th, uh, 18th century. Yeah. Um, there are some remarkable people involved in that deciphering activity, aren't there? John Wallace, the Oxford mathematician, and he's almost like a human computer, isn't he? There's no, there's no cipher he cannot crack. No, and uh, the interesting thing about Wallace is he seems to think it's the, it's more the puzzle that's important than the politics. So he's he's working for he work for the English Republic, but he also works for the Protectorate, but he also works under Charles II. So he's he's sort of the the, the, the go-to guy is a mathematician, um, as it were. Um, and his big argument is with Thomas Hobbes, of course, but that's another story. But, yeah, I mean, uh, he's um, – the ciphering is is quite interesting on a variety of different levels. Most of this material which you look at has been deciphered anyhow, so there's not any real problem for a historian looking at it. I mean, uh, and people get excited about ciphers and things, but they're actually – they're really – Sort of two or three different versions. One is a sort of number trans transcriptions, as it were. The other one is using sort of code words and things like that. And there's actually in the National Archives a whole big book of ciphers. Um, the problem comes, of course, when uh, is who does the deciphering, who does the ciphering, and that would be given to a particular clerk in the office to, to cipher up. Um, sometimes it goes wrong. Um, and or the person at the other end can't decipher it properly. The the, the most famous anecdote is um, the English amb- ambassador in the Netherlands in the 1660s, uh, 1670s, Sir William Temple, anyhow, who gets a letter from the Secretary of State's office um, and, and he just can't decipher it. So he takes it to... John DeVitt, who is the, the grand pensionary of the nether, he's basically the top man, and says, I can't decide for this. Can't you do, what do you think we can have a go together <laughs> and to see if we can work it out? Um, so it's actually fatal if you lose the codes. Um, the other elements of this, of course, include the usual stuff, which is, um, um, uh, was once described as 
things like milk uh, and lemon juice to um, write in between the lines uh, of, of ordinary correspondence. Um, and um, they also use urine as well, or, or as it's described, piss, as it were, which interestingly does appear in one of Ian Fleming's books, uh, oddly enough. Um, but um, how effective these are is, is really debatable. I mean, the lemon juice thing is fairly straightforward. You write it lemon juice, so you put a candle underneath and it, lo and behold, it appears. But I think it's done sometimes more for dramatic effect than it actually is practical things. Um, so ciphers and uh, various forms of secret ink are all available. Um, and sometimes it's just in plain sight. But they do use the ways of getting correspondence to the Secretary of State, which are not um, straightforward, because right, right across Europe, there are cabinet noir, uh, the black cabinets, are they called, uh, in France particularly, uh, which spend all their day intercepting correspondence. Yeah. So tell um, us, tell us, Alan, about field work as well. You, you, you mentioned the book. It's not all just about what happens in the office in, in London, is it? Uh, there are men and indeed women out there in various uh, positions. Um, different kinds of premises are being spied upon. There are informants. There are people who are turned, bribed, coerced, cajoled, uh, threatened. Um, there, there are the Matahari figures. Uh, that th there are um, spies in the royalist court. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary range of people who are involved in this activity, isn't it? Yeah, so I, I think in terms of classification, I mean, the, the, it's difficult to classify anybody doing one particular function because they do a multitude of different tasks. Um, but um, it involves men and women uh, and there is a by the 1650s there's a sort of floating population of exiles, ex-army uh, merchants and others who are all willing to engage in this work for for extra cash basically or something in kind. Um, they are all the so-called she spies so it, it, it's not exactly an equal opportunities employee. Um, but women have certain advantages uh, in this world, um, particularly in the civil wars early on, because uh, they, they tend not to be uh, stopped and searched, as it were. Later on, that, that doesn't happen. Um, they, they are just treated as everybody else. But there are um, individuals... Usually, I mean, the, the, the most professional types are those who are sort of mercenaries and ex-soldiers who at least know exactly what sort of information a, a Secretary of State would want um, in terms of numbers of, of troops, of ships, etc., etc., etc. So the, the basic intelligence stuff is that information. It's about who said what to whom at court, uh, gossip, um, factions, alliances, uh, fighting, uh, mistresses, etc., etc., um, and uh, that's the sort of information which they're passing over, from which the intelligence then can make decisions about policy. Um, so you get somebody like Manning, for instance, in in uh, uh, who's at the court of exile court of Charles II, providing basic information about what's going on at this exile court until he gets actual court himself. Um, and he's providing it directly to Thurlow, and Thurlow, in his exchange, is giving him money uh, in exchange for it. 
um, until he gets caught. And then, of course, he's in, his letters are intercepted and he gets caught and, and put in jail and then taken out and shot in the back of the head, as it were, by two royalists. Uh, so it's actually quite, it can be quite dangerous, a dangerous job. Um, but in in many senses, some of these agents and some of these spies, it, it's, it's, it's quite difficult to trace their careers because they appear and then disappear quite quickly. Um, in general, one could argue that they're all after something else. Um, they're, they're all after some sort of patronage, uh, whether that will en end up in a small, minor bureaucratic post, as it sometimes does, safely away from the Secretary of State's office, a long way away from it. Um, there's, a, there's an anecdote about that with Harley, which I'll come back to. Or the some sort of financial money, uh, monetary gain, or basically some sort of praise, you know, because um, there's a psychological thing there. Um, the reason why you don't reward them by putting them into some bureaucratic post which they can then gather information for, because Robert Harley did that with a, with a, with a guy called Greg, uh, William Greg, and um, he placed him in his office uh, in the 1700s. And um, lo and behold, Greg then copies out letters and sends them to the French until he gets caught. And then Harley gets into real trouble over that. So um, it's it's uh, one of the um, commentators uh, on military affairs points out that you should never trust these type of people with anything secretarial because we'll just... We'll, information. Of course, this also goes for diplomats as well, and diplomatic uh, entourages and servants. <clears throat> servants are just around all the time, but they listen. I mean, um, again, in, in terms of uh, the classic case of this is, is Versailles in France uh, under Louis XIV. All of the soldiers on guard and the servants who are serving, they're all reporting back on what the courtiers are saying, what people are saying. Um, you know, it, it's it's just just the done thing, and everybody knows that's happening. So it has to be more cautious. So in this sense, uh, that that caution itself is a is a is a winner um, because it keeps them quiet. Well, in in all of your project, Alan, was there any individual intelligence gatherer or spy who really caught your imagination? It's Edward Sexby, I think. Um, um, because Sexby is leveller originally and then gets bought off by being made an officer because he's just an ordinary trooper. Um, and then he goes through this mysterious court-martial in Scotland um, when he's supposed to have um, stopped these men's pay and taken the money, etc. And it's really odd court-martial, this, um, in which it's fairly obviously it's a it's it's a it may be a put up job and then he ends up back in London and then suddenly he's chosen um, by Scott and and the others uh, to go off to Bordeaux where there's a rebellion going on the Fronde uh, is is going on and he's there really to report on um, what's happening and so whether the English Republic can gain any advantage out of it in France um, but he then starts to try and engineer a revolution based upon um, level of doctrines, um, which doesn't really succeed because they write out the a version of the agreement of the people 
um, and um, one of the uh, ministers says not to be not to be actioned, you know. And then he comes back, Sexby, having ranted and raved about the fact we didn't support the, the Bordeaux, um, and switches round in order and and really deals becomes hostile to Cromwell, hostile to protectorate, and then tries to engineer Cromwell's assassination. So he, he he runs the whole gamut from really from ordinary Cromwellian trooper in Cromwell's own regiment right the way through into ending up in the tower because he tried to engineer this assassination plot. Um, but on the way, he's been an, uh, uh, he's been a political agent, he's been a secret agent, he's been a, a plotter, a conspirator. He's 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 went he went to Spain to try and raise money to overthrow the protectorate. Met met the king and first minister in Spain, and it's, it's really a big uh, a big journey for a former grocer from London. <laughs> um, so he just he just captured the imagination in that period. Yes. And it all ends tragically. I mean, he even uses his wife to carry um, gold across the across the channel. It's just all it's all um, tied up in a dress. And there's, there's a, there, and there's a lot of it, isn't there? I mean, she's carrying there a is. lot of gold. It must be incredibly heavy. Yes, and, and of course, I mean, if, if the ship had went down, that would be it, you know. But I, there's something that's quite interesting about the uh, about the um, about um, Wives and sisters and things like that—they do—they do tend to support um, these individuals, and they, they get neglected in, in in that sense. I mean, Mary Sexby. I mean, she's 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 in exile. She's having children. She's also engaging in in all of her husband's shenanigans and, and things like that. And but she gets tends tends to get forgotten about. Um, but but he's the he's he's the one who strikes me as most significant um, in 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 that sense. Well, Sexby's story and many others uh, equally fascinating are all reported on in this great book, Intelligence and Espionage in the English Republic, circa 1600 to 1660, just published by Manchester University Press. And Alan Marshall, it's been great to have you on the show today to talk about it. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for inviting me. Before, Before we let you go, can you tell us what we might hope to read from you next about intelligence? Well, I've got a, an article which I've got a proof today. Um, which is coming out in the journal History on Robert Harley in the Secretary of State. Um, but otherwise, I'm moving into looking at the end of the Cromwellian army at the moment. Um, so it doesn't really involve spies, but it does involve the uh, Cromwellian lifeguard, amongst other things. Well, those sound like great projects, Alan. Listen, thanks for writing this book, Intelligence and Espionage in the English Republic. Um, great book, full of extraordinary characters um, and with some really important themes coming through as well in terms of the development of knowledge, the state, um, international relations, religious change, everything is in there. It's just a wonderful glimpse into the 17th century. Thanks for coming on to the show to talk about your work and thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on the New Book Network podcast.